0: Greetings, listeners. We're back, once again, to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos. Its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian-leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, This is an exploration of the Cthulhu Mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Season 8.
1: Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer, and between episodes, let's see, 107 and 134, we will be talking about The Beetle. The Beetle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out. And that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by foundoutonclothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Serafie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at pgttcm.com and check out the merch table over at pgttcm.threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at pgttcm or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin MacLeod featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, oppressive gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber.
2: Chapter 42 The Quarry Doubles I turned towards the booking office on the main departure platform. As I went, the chief platform inspector, George Bellingham, with whom I had some acquaintance, came out of his office. I stopped him. Mr. Bellingham, will you be so good as to step with me to the booking office and instruct the clerk in charge to answer one or two questions which I wished to put to him? I will explain to you afterwards what is their exact import, but you know me sufficiently to be able to believe me when I say that they refer to a matter in which every moment is of the first importance. He turned and accompanied us into the interior of the booking case. To which of the clerks, Mr. Champnell, do you wish to put your questions? To the one who issues third-class tickets to Southampton. Bellingham beckoned to a man who was counting a heap of money, and apparently seeking to make it tally with the entries in a huge ledger which lay open before him. He was a short, slightly built young fellow, with a pleasant face and smiling eyes. Mr. Stone, this gentleman wishes to ask you one or two questions. I am at his service. I put my questions. I want to know, Mr. Stone, if, in the course of the day, you have issued any tickets to a person dressed in Arab costume. His reply was prompt. I have... By the last train, the 725, three singles. Three singles. Then my instinct had told me rightly. Can you describe the person? Mr. Stone's eyes twinkled. I don't know that I can, except in a general way. He was uncommonly old and uncommonly ugly, and he had a pair of the most extraordinary eyes I ever saw. They gave me a sort of all-overish feeling when I saw them glaring at me through the pigeonhole. But I can tell you one thing about him. He had a great bundle on his head, which he steadied with one hand, and as it bulged out in all directions, its presence didn't make him popular with other people who wanted tickets too. Undoubtedly, this was our man. You are sure he asked for three tickets? Certain. He said three tickets to Southampton, laid down the exact fare, nineteen and six, and held up three fingers like that. 3 nasty-looking fingers they were, with nails as long as talons. "'You didn't see who were his companions?' "'I didn't. I didn't try to look. "'I gave him his tickets, and off he went, "'with the people grumbling at him because that bundle of his kept getting in their way. "'Bellingham touched me on the arm. "'I can tell you all about the Arab of whom Mr. Stone speaks. "'My attention was called to him by his insisting on taking his bundle with him into the carriage.' It was an enormous thing, he could hardly squeeze it through the door. It occupied the entire seat. But as there weren't as many passengers as usual, and he wouldn't or couldn't be made to understand that his precious bundle would be safe in the luggage van along with the rest of the luggage, and as he wasn't the sort of person you could argue with to any advantage, I had him put into an empty compartment, bundle and all. Was he alone then?" I thought so at the time. He said nothing about having more than one ticket or any companions. But just before the train started, two other men, Englishmen, got into his compartment. And as I came down the platform, the ticket inspector at the barrier informed me that these two men were with him, because he held tickets for the three, which, as he was a foreigner and they seemed English, struck the inspector as odd. Could you describe the two men? I couldn't. Not particularly, but the man who had charge of the barrier might. I was at the other end of the train when they got in. All I noticed was that one seemed to be a commonplace-looking individual, and the other was dressed like a tramp, all rags and tatters. A disreputable-looking object he appeared to be. That I said to myself was Miss Marjorie Linden, the lovely daughter of a famous house, the wife-elect of a coming statesman. To Bellingham I remarked aloud. I want you to strain a point, Mr. Bellingham, and to do me a service which I assure you, you shall never have any cause to regret. I want you to wire instructions down the line to detain this Arab and his companions, and to keep them in custody until the receipt of further instructions. They are not wanted by the police as yet, but they will be as soon as I am able to give certain information to the authorities at Scotland Yard, and wanted very badly.' But, as you will perceive for yourself, until I am able to give that information, every moment is important. Where's the station superintendent? He's gone. At present, I'm in charge. Then will you do this for me? I repeat that you shall never have any reason to regret it. I will, if you'll accept all responsibility. I'll do that with the greatest pleasure. Bellingham looked at his watch. It's about twenty minutes to nine. The train's scheduled for Basingstoke at six. If we wire to Basingstoke at once, they ought to be ready for them when they come. Good. The wire was sent. We were shown into Bellingham's office to await results. Lessingham paced agitatedly to and fro. He seemed to have reached the limits of his self-control, and to be in a condition in which movement of some sort was an absolute necessity. The mercurial Sydney, on the contrary, leaned back in a chair, his legs stretched out in front of him, his hands thrust deep into his trouser pockets, and stared at Lessingham as if he found relief to his feelings in watching his companion's restlessness. I, for my part, drew up as full of presses of the case as I deemed advisable, and as time permitted which I dispatched by one of the company's police to Scotland Yard. Then I turned to my associates. Now, gentlemen, it's past dinner time. We may have a journey in front of us. If you take my advice, you'll have something to eat." Lessingham shook his head. I want nothing. Nor I, echoed Sidney. I started up. You must pardon my saying nonsense, but surely you of all men, Mr. Lessingham, should be aware that you will not improve the situation by rendering yourself incapable of seeing it through. Come and dine. I hailed them off with me, willy-nilly, to the refreshment room. I dined, after a fashion. Mr. Lessingham swallowed with difficulty a plate of soup. Sidney nibbled at a plate of the most unpromising-looking chicken and ham. He proved, indeed, more intractable than Lessingham, and was not to be persuaded to tackle anything easier of digestion. I was just about to take cheese after chop when Bellingham came hastening in, in his hand an open telegram. "'The birds have flown,' he cried. "'Flown? How?' In reply he gave me the telegram. I glanced at it. It ran... "'Persons described not in the train. "'Guard says they got out at Vauxhall. "'Have wired Vauxhall to advise you.' "'That's a level-headed chap,' said Bellingham. "'The man who sent that telegram. "'His wiring to Vauxhall should save us a lot of time. "'We ought to hear from them directly. "'Hello, what's this? "'I shouldn't be surprised if this is it.' "'As he spoke, a porter entered. "'He handed an envelope to Bellingham.' We all three kept our eyes fixed on the inspector's face as he opened it. When he perceived the contents, he gave an exclamation of surprise. This Arab of yours and his two friends seem rather a curious lot, Mr. Champnell. He passed the paper on to me. It took the form of a report. Lessingham and Sydney, regardless of forms and ceremonies, leaned over my shoulder as I read it. Passengers by 7.30 Southampton on arrival of train complained of noises coming from a compartment in Coach 8964. stated that there had been shrieks and yells ever since the train left Waterloo, as if someone was being murdered. An Arab and two Englishmen got out of the compartment in question, apparently the party referred to in wire just a hand from Basingstoke. All three declared that there was nothing the matter, that they had been shouting for fun, Arab gave up three-thirds singles for Southampton, saying, in reply to questions, that they had changed their minds and did not want to go any farther. As there were no signs of a struggle or of violence, nor apparently any definite cause for detention, they were allowed to pass. They took a four-wheeler, number zero nine four three five. The Arab and one man went inside, and the other men on the box. They asked to be driven to Commercial Road, Limehouse. The cab has since returned. Driver says he put the three men down at their request in Commercial Road at the corner of Sutcliffe Street, near the East India docks. They walked up Sutcliffe Street, the Englishman in front and the Arab behind, took the first turning to the right, and after that he saw nothing of them. The driver further states that all the way the Englishman inside, who was so ragged and dirty that he was reluctant to carry him, kept up a sort of wailing noise which so attracted his attention that he twice got off his box to see what was the matter, and each time he said it was nothing. The cabman is of opinion that both the Englishmen were of weak intellect. We were of the same impression here. He said nothing, except at the seeming instigation of the Arab, but, when spoken to, stared and gaped like lunatics. It may be mentioned that the Arab had with him an enormous bundle, which he persisted, in spite of all remonstrances, on taking with him inside the cab. As soon as I had mastered the contents of the report and perceived what I believed to be, unknown to the writer himself, its hideous inner meaning, I turned to Bellingham. With your permission, Mr. Bellingham, I will keep this communication. It will be safe in my hands, you will be able to get a copy, and it may be necessary that I should have the original to show to the police. If any inquiries are made for me from Scotland Yard, tell them i've gone to commercial road and that i will report my movements from limehouse police station in another minute we were once more traversing the streets of london three in a handsome cab end of chapter 42 it is something of a drive from waterloo to limehouse it seems longer when all your nerves are tingling with anxiety to reach your journey's end and the cab I had hit upon proved to be not the fastest I might have chosen. For some time after our start, we were silent. Each was occupied with his own thoughts. Then Lessingham, who was sitting at my side, said to me, Mr. Champnow, you have that report? I have. Will you let me see it once more? I gave it to him. He read it once, twice, and I fancy yet again. I purposely avoided looking at him as he did so. Yet, all the while, I was conscious of his pallid cheeks, the twitched muscles of his mouth, the feverish glitter of his eyes. This leader of men, whose predominant characteristic in the House of Commons was immobility, was rapidly approximating the condition of a hysterical woman. The mental strain which he had been recently undergoing was proving too much for his physical strength. This disappearance of the woman he loved bade fair to be the final straw, I felt convinced that unless something was done quickly to relieve the strain upon his mind, he was nearer to a state of complete mental and moral collapse than he himself imagined. Had he been under my orders, I should have commanded him to at once return home, and not to think. But conscious that, as things were, such a direction would be simply futile, I decided to do something else instead, feeling that suspense was for him the worst possible form of suffering. I resolved to explain, so far as I was able, precisely what it was I feared and how I proposed to prevent it. Presently there came the question for which I had been waiting, in a harsh broken voice which no one who had heard him speak on a public platform or in the House of Commons would have recognized as his. Mr. Champnell, who do you think this person is of whom the report from Vauxhall Station speaks as being all in rags and tatters?' "'He knew perfectly well, but I understood the mental attitude "'which induced him to prefer that the information should seem to come from me. "'I hope that it will prove to be Miss Linden.' "'Hope?' he gave a sort of gasp. "'Yes, hope, because if it is, I think it possible, "'nay, probable, that within a few hours "'you will have her again enfolded in your arms. "'Pray God that it may be so. Pray God. Pray the good God.' I did not dare to look round, for from the tremor which was in his tone, I was persuaded that in the speaker's eyes were tears. Atherton continued silent. He was leaning half out of the cab, staring straight ahead, as if he saw in front of a young girl's face, from which he could not remove his glance, and which beckoned him on. After a while, Lessingham spoke again, as if half to himself and half to me. This mention of the shrieks on the railway, and of the wailing noise in the cab, What must this wretch have done to her? How my darling must have suffered! That was a theme on which I myself scarcely ventured to allow my thoughts to rest. The notion of a gently nurtured girl being at the mercy of that fiend incarnate, possessed, as I believe that so-called Arab to be possessed, of all the paraphernalia of horror and of dread, was one which caused me tangible shrinkings of the body. Once had come those shrieks and yells of which the writer of the report spoke— which had caused the Arabs' fellow passengers to think that murder was being done? What unimaginable agony had caused them? What speechless torture? And the wailing noise which had induced the prosaic injury London cabman to get twice off his box to see what was the matter? What anguish had been provocative of that? The helpless girl who had already endured so much, endured, perhaps, that to which death would have been preferred, Shut up in that rattling, jolting box on wheels, alone with that diabolical Asiatic, with the enormous bundle which was but the lurking place of nameless terrors, what might she not, while being born through the heart of civilized London, have been made to suffer? What had she not been made to suffer to have kept up that continued wailing noise? It was not a theme on which it was wise to permit one's thoughts to linger.' And particularly was it clear that it was one from which Lessingham's thoughts should have been kept as far as possible away. Come, Mr. Lessingham, neither you nor I will do himself any good by permitting his reflections to flow in a morbid channel. Let us talk of something else. By the way, weren't you due to speak in the house tonight? Do, Yes, I was due. But what does it matter? But you have acquainted no one with the cause of your non-attendance. Acquaint? "'Whom should I acquaint?' "'My good sir, listen to me, Mr. Lessingham. "'Let me entreat you very earnestly to follow my advice. "'Call another cab, or take this, and go at once to the house. "'It is not too late. "'Play the man, deliver the speech you have undertaken to deliver, "'perform your political duties. "'By coming with me you will be a hindrance rather than a help, "'and you may do your reputation an injury from which it never may recover.' "'Do as I counsel you, and I will undertake to do my very utmost "'to let you have good news by the time your speech is finished.' "'He turned on me with a bitterness for which I was unprepared. "'If I were to go down to the house "'and try to speak in the state in which I am now, "'they would laugh at me. I should be ruined. "'Do you not run an equally great risk of being ruined by staying away?' "'He gripped me by the arm. "'Mr. Champnell, do you know that I am on the verge of madness?' "'Do you know that as I am sitting here by your side "'I am living in a dual world? "'I am going on and on to catch that, that fiend, "'and I am back again in that Egyptian den "'upon that couch of rugs "'with the woman of the songs beside me. "'And Marjorie is being torn and tortured "'and burnt before my eyes. "'God help me, her shrieks are ringing in my ears!' "'He did not speak loudly, "'but his voice was nonetheless impressive on that account. "'I endeavored my hardest to be stern.' I confess that you disappoint me, Mr. Lessingham. I have always understood that you were a man of unusual strength. You appear instead to be a man of extraordinary weakness, with an imagination so ill-governed that its ebullitions remind me of nothing so much as feminine hysterics. Your wild language is not wanted by circumstances. I repeat that I think it quite possible that by tomorrow morning she will be returned to you. Yes, but how? As the marjorie I have known as I saw her last, or how? That was the question which I had already asked myself. In what condition would she be when we had succeeded in snatching her from her captor's grip? It was a question to which I had refused to supply an answer. To him I lied by implication. Let us hope that, with the exception of being a trifle scared, she will be as sound and hale and hearty as ever in her life. Do you yourself believe that she'll be like that, untouched, "'Unchanged, unstained? "'Then I lied right out. "'It seemed to me necessary to calm his growing excitement. "'I do? "'You don't, Mr. Lessingham. "'Do you think that I can't see your face "'and read it in the same thoughts which trouble me? "'As a man of honor, do you care to deny "'that when Marjorie Linden is restored to me, "'if she ever is, "'you fear she will be but the mere soiled husk "'of the Marjorie whom I knew and loved?' Even supposing that there may be a modicum of truth in what you say, which I am far from being disposed to admit, what good purpose do you propose to serve by talking in such a strain? None. No good purpose. Unless it be the desire of looking the truth in the face. For, Mr. Chapnow, you must not seek to play with me the hypocrite, nor try to hide things from me, as if I were a child. If my life is ruined, it is ruined. Let me know it and look the knowledge in the face. That, to me, is to play the man. I was silent. The wild tale he told me of that carrying inferno, oddly enough, yet why, oddly, for the world is it all coincidence, had thrown a flood of light on certain events which had happened some three years previously and which ever since had remained shrouded in mystery.' The conduct of the business afterwards came into my hands, and briefly, what had occurred was this. Three persons, two sisters and their brother, who was younger than themselves, members of a decent English family, were going on a trip around the world. They were young, adventurous, and, not to put too fine a point on it, foolhardy. The evening after their arrival in Cairo, by way of what is called a lark, in spite of the protestations of people who were better informed than themselves, "'They insisted on going alone, for a ramble through the native quarter. "'They went, but they never returned. "'Or, rather, the two girls never returned. "'After an interval the young man was found again. "'What was left of him? "'A fuss was made when there were no signs of their reappearance, "'but, as there were no relations, nor even friends of theirs, "'but only casual acquaintances on board the ship by which they had travelled, "'perhaps not so great a fuss as might have been, was made.' Anyhow, nothing was discovered. Their widowed mother, alone in England, wondering how it was that, beyond the receipt of a brief wire acquainting her with their arrival at Cairo, she had heard nothing further of their wanderings, placed herself in communication with the diplomatic people over there, to learn that, to all appearances, her three children had vanished from off the face of the earth. Then a fuss was made, with a vengeance. So far as one can judge, the whole town and neighborhood was turned pretty well upside down but nothing came of it. So far as any results were concerned, the authorities might just as well have left the mystery of their banishment alone. It continued where it was in spite of them. However, some three months afterwards, a youth was brought to the British Embassy by a party of friendly Arabs, who asserted that they had found him naked and nearly dying in some remote spot in the Weedy Haifa desert. It was the brother of the two lost girls, He was as nearly dying as he was very well could be without being actually dead when they brought him to the embassy, and in a state of indescribable mutilation. He seemed to rally for a time under careful treatment, but he never again uttered a coherent word. It was only from his delirious ravings that any idea was formed of what really occurred. Shorthand notes were taken of some of the utterances of his delirium. Afterwards they were submitted to me. I remembered the substance of them quite well, and when Mr. Lessingham began to tell me his own hideous experiences, they came back to me more clearly still. Had I laid those notes before him, I have little doubt but that he would have immediately perceived that seventeen years after the adventure which had left such an indelible scar upon his own life, this youth, he was little more than a boy, had seen the things which he had seen, and suffered the nameless agonies and degradations which he had suffered. The young man was perpetually raving about some indescribable den of horror, which was own brother to Lessingham's temple, and about some female monster, whom he regarded with such fear and horror, that every allusion made to her was followed by a convulsive paroxysm which taxed all the ingenuity of his medical attendants to bring him out of. He frequently called upon his sisters by name, speaking of them in a manner which inevitably suggested that he had been an unwilling and helpless witness of hideous tortures which they had undergone. And then he would rise in bed, screaming, They're burning them! They're burning them! Devils! Devils! And at those times it required all the strength of those who were in attendance to restrain his maddened frenzy. The youth died in one of these fits of great preternatural excitement, without, as I have previously written, having given utterance to one single coherent word, and by some of those who were best able to judge it was held to have been a mercy that he did die without having been restored to consciousness. And, presently, tales began to be whispered about some idolatrous sect, which was stated to have its headquarters somewhere in the interior of the country, some located in this neighborhood and some in that, which was stated to still practice, and to always have practiced in unbroken historical continuity, the debased, unclean, mystic, and bloody rites of a form of idolatry which had had its birth in a period of the world's story which was so remote that to all intents and purposes it might be described as prehistoric. While the ferment was still at its height, a man came to the British Embassy who said that he was a member of a tribe which had its habitat on the banks of the White Nile. He asserted that he was in association with this very idolatrous sect, though he denied that he was one of the actual sectaries. He did admit, however, that he had assisted more than once at their orgies, and declared that it was their constant practice to offer young women as sacrifices, preferably white Christian women, with a special preference if they could get them to young English women. He vowed that he himself had seen with his own eyes English girls burnt alive, the description which he gave of what preceded and followed these foul murders appalled those who listened. He finally wound up offering, on pavement of a stipulated sum of money, to guide a troop of soldiers to this den of demons, so that they should arrive there at the moment when it was filled with worshippers who were preparing to participate in an orgy which was to take place during the next few days. His offer was conditionally accepted. He was confined in an apartment with one man on guard inside, and another on guard outside the room. That night the sentinel without was startled by hearing a great noise and frightful screams issuing from the chamber, in which the native was interned. He summoned assistance. The door was opened. The soldier on guard within was stark staring mad. He died within a few months, a gibbering maniac to the end. The native was dead. The window, which was a very small one, was securely fastened inside and strongly barred without. There was nothing to show by what means entry had been gained, yet it was the general opinion of those who saw the corpse that the man had been destroyed by some wild beast. A photograph was taken of the body after death, a copy of which is still in my possession. In it are distinctly shown lacerations about the neck and the lower portion of the abdomen as if they had been produced by the claws of some huge and ferocious animal. The skull is splintered in half a dozen places, and the face is torn to rags. That was more than three years ago. The whole business has remained as great a mystery as ever. But my attention has once or twice been caught by trifling incidents, which have caused me to more than suspect that the wild tale told by that murdered native had in it at least the elements of truth and which have even led me to wonder if the trade in kidnapping was not being carried on to this very hour, and if women of my own flesh and blood were not still being offered up on that infernal altar. And now here was Paul Lessingham, a man of worldwide reputation, of great intellect, of undoubted honor, who had come to me with a wholly unconscious verification of all my worst suspicions, that the creature spoken of as an Arab and, who was probably no more an Arab than I was, and whose name was certainly not Mohammed el-Kir, was an emissary from that den of demons, I had no doubt. What was the exact purport of the creature's presence in England was another question. Possibly part of the intention was the destruction of Paul Lessingham, body, soul, and spirit. Possibly another part was the procuration of fresh victims for that long-drawn-out holocaust. That this latter object explained the disappearance of Miss Linden, I felt persuaded. That she was designed, by the personification of evil who was her captor, to suffer all the horrors at which the stories pointed, and then to be burned alive amidst the triumphant yells of the attendant demons, I was certain. That the wretch, aware that the pursuits was in full cry, was tearing, twisting, doubling, and would stick at nothing which would facilitate the smuggling of the victim, out of England, was clear. My interest in the quest was already far other than a merely professional one. The blood in my veins tingled at the thought of such a woman as Miss London being in the power of such a monster. I may assuredly claim that throughout the whole business I was urged forward by no thought of fee or of reward. To have had a share in rescuing that unfortunate girl and in the destruction of her noxious persecutor would have been a reward enough for me. One is not always, even in strictly professional matters, influenced by strictly professional instincts. The cab slowed. A voice descended through the trap door. This is commercial road, sir. What part of it do you want? Drive me to Limehouse Police Station. We were driven there. I made my way to the usual inspector behind the usual pigeonhole. My name is Champnow. Have you received any communication from Scotland Yard tonight? "'having reference to a matter in which I am interested? "'Do you mean about the Arab? "'We received a telephonic message about a half an hour ago. "'Since communicating with Scotland Yard, "'this has come to hand from the authorities at Vauxhall Station. "'Can you tell me if anything has been seen of the person in question "'by the men of your division?' "'I handed the inspector the report. "'His reply was laconic. "'I will inquire.' He passed through a door into an inner room, and the report went with him. "'Beg pardon, sir, but was that a harab you was talking about to the inspector?' The speaker was a gentleman unmistakably of the guttersnipe class. He was seated on a form. Close at hand, hovered a policeman, whose special duty it seemed to be to keep an eye upon his movements. "'Why do you ask?' "'I beg your pardon, sir, but I saw a harab myself about an hour ago.' "'leastways he looked like as if he was a harob. "'What sort of looking person was he? "'I can't hardly tell that, sir, "'because I didn't never have a proper look at him. "'But I know he had a bloomin' great bundle on his head. "'It was like this year. "'I was comin' round the corner as he was passin', "'I never see him till I was right atop of him. "'So that I accidentally run again. "'My hey, didn't it give me a downer?' "'I was down on my back of my head in the middle of the road "'before I knew where I was, and he was at the other end of the street. "'If he hadn't knocked me more'n half silly, I'd been after him sharp. "'I'd tell you, and ask him what he thought he was a-doing, "'but afore my senses was back again, he was out of sight clean. "'You were sure that he had a bundle on his head? "'I noticed it most particular. "'How long ago did you say this was, and where? "'About an hour ago?' "'Perhaps more, perhaps less?' "'Was he alone?' "'It seemed to me as if a cove was a-follower in him. "'Listways there was a bloke as was a-keeping close at his heels. "'Though I don't know what his little game was, I'm sure. "'Ask the pleaseman. "'He knows, he knows everything the pleasemen do.' "'I turned to the pleesman "'Who is this man?' "'The pleesman put his hands behind his back and threw out his chest. "'His manner was distinctly affable.' "'Well, he's being detained upon suspicion. "'He's given us an address at which to make inquiries, "'and inquiries are being made. "'I shouldn't pay too much attention to what he says if I were you. "'I don't suppose he'd be particular about a lie or two. "'This frank expression of opinion "'rearoused the indignation of the gentleman on the form. "'There you are at it again. "'That's just like you peelers. you are all the same. "'What do you know about me? "'Nothing.' "'This gentleman ain't got no call to believe me, not as I knows on. "'It's all the same to me if you do or don't. "'But it's truth what I'm saying all the same.' "'At this point the inspector reappeared at the pigeonhole. "'He cut short the flow of eloquence. "'Now then, not so much noise outside there.' "'He addressed me. "'None of our men have seen anything of the person you're inquiring for, "'so far as we're aware.' "'But if you like, I will place a man at your disposal, and he will go round with you. "'And you'll be able to make your own inquiries.' "'A capless, wildly excited young ragamuffin came dashing in at the street door. "'He gasped out as clearly as he could for the speed which he had made. "'There's been a murder done, Mr. Pleaseman. A harp's killed a bloke.' "'Mr. Pleasman gripped him by the shoulder. "'What's that?' The youngster put up his arm and ducked his head instinctively, as if to ward off a blow. Leave me alone. I don't want none of your andlin. I ain't done nothing to you. I tell you he has. The inspector spoke through the pigeonhole. He has what, my lad? What do you say has happened? There's been murder done. It's right enough, there as. Up at Mrs. Anderson's in Paradise Place. A harrow's been and killed a bloke. End of chapter forty-three